0: So today we're going to be focusing on verses uh, 9 through to 13 of his 18th letter uh, on festivals and fasting. And uh, in this one... There's an ending place that we arrive at, which is the title of this episode, which is uh, Seneca discussing this idea of developing a kinship with God, right? Uh, but the way that he gets us there, the way that he discusses that a person might arrive at that destination to be in a kinship with God uh, is what I'm very interested in in trying to get out of these few verses. Uh, so I guess we'll read through them and uh, and then we'll pick it apart and see what value we can take away. He says, quote, Even Epicurus, the teacher of pleasure, used to observe stated intervals during which he satisfied his hunger in niggardly fashion. He wished to see whether he thereby fell short of full and complete happiness, and, if so, by what amount he fell short, and whether this amount was worth purchasing at the price of great effort. At any rate, he makes such a statement in the well-known letter written to Polyanus in the Archonship of Chirinus. Indeed, he boasts that he himself lived on less than a penny, but that Metrodorus, whose progress was not yet so great, needed a whole penny. Do you think that there can be fullness on such fare? Yes, and there is pleasure also. Not that shifty and fleeting pleasure which needs a fillip now and then, but a pleasure that is steadfast and sure. For, though water, barley meal, and crusts of barley bread are not a cheerful diet, yet it is the highest kind of pleasure to be able to derive pleasure from this sort of food, and to have reduced one's needs to that modicum which no unfairness of fortune can snatch away. Even prison fare is more generous. And those who have been set apart for capital punishment are not so meanly fed by the man who is to execute them. Therefore, what a noble soul one must have to descend of one's own free will to such a diet which even those who have been sentenced to death have not to fear. This is indeed forestalling the spear thrusts of fortune. So begin, my dear Lucilius, to follow the custom of these men, And set apart certain days on which you shall withdraw from your business and make yourself at home with the scantiest fare. Establish business relations with poverty. And now Seneca quotes from Virgil saying, Dare, O my friend, to scorn the sight of wealth and mould thyself to kinship with thy God. He says, For he alone is in kinship with God, who has scorned wealth. Of course, I do not forbid you to possess it, but I would have you reach the point at which you possess it dauntlessly. This can be accomplished only by persuading yourself that you can live happily without it as well as with it, and by regarding riches always as likely to elude you. End quote. All right. So, if you've been listening to the previous few episodes, you'll recognize that these verses are really rounding off the entire letter uh, and, and really bringing us to this final destination of Seneca saying, you know, if you can really practice poverty, if you can put yourself in the situations where you have to go through the pain of training yourself out of this mindset that you need so much in life, and if you can see just how little you truly need to be happy, uh, you know, then you can enter this kinship with God as as Virgil describes, right? And you can imagine that this is almost, uh, you know, the state of you might say, in the Buddhist terms, it would be Nirvana, the state of of desirelessness, right? Because The Stoics did have that point as well. They called it eudaimonia or flourishing. It's that point of desirelessness where you recognize uh, that what is truly needed for your internal flourishing and what is really needed for you to, to live a meaningful life is within you. It is within you, and it does not require a lot in the external world. In fact, it requires very little, which is why he looks up to people, for example, like Epicurus, who, who you know, did the practice and and could very happily live off a very, very, very small amount each day. So anyway, I want to go back through these verses and pick apart some pieces that really stood out to me uh, that might be useful in in context. So uh, firstly, he talks about at the start uh, Epicurus, how he he would do this practice of going for long periods of time living uh, with very, very little, right? And he said that he wished to see whether he thereby fell short of full and complete happiness, and if so, by what amount he fell short. And whether his this amount uh, was worth purchasing at the price of great effort. And he goes on to talk about how Epicurus compared himself to Metrodorus, uh, who could only live off one penny a day, whereas Epicurus could live off less than that. And, uh, and, and, and it's, an, it's an interesting way to boast, right? But uh, the idea that I want to get across here, and I want you to think about this in your own life. I, I think that it's, 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 it's interesting to think about this idea of how you are falling short of full and complete happiness, or you might think fullness or eudaimonia, And certainly one of the ways that you can do that is look around you in your life and look at all of the stuff that you have, look at all of the things you've accumulated, Uh, look at the job that you have, the family that you have, you know, look at everything that is in your life that you might consider to be an external, as in outside of your own soul. Uh, And then think about, you know, how much of this could I go without? You know, how much of this could be taken away from me by the cruel hands of fate And I would still be able to live a flourishing or meaningful internal life, you know. Uh, That's a real question that we have to think about because for a lot of us in the kind of societies that we live in, we become so accustomed to having all of this stuff around us. We become so accustomed to our way of life that we think that that is what true happiness is. And so, we become very grasping and we need to keep this stuff and we need to get more, you know, like Seneca often talks about, it's like that that cycle of desire, it never ends. It will never be enough for you. And so, you will be tricked into believing that what you have in your life is actually yours to keep and it is is—it is a part of you uh, in, in the same way that if it is ripped away from you, it will be painful to you and it will not be good for you, right? And so, Seneca would say, well, look, Practice going without so that you see the stories that start to flow through your mind, right? Like, this is bad, this is painful, I don't like this, this is not good for me, all of these things. And as soon as you start to see these stories popping into your mind, and as soon as you start to believe them, that's when you will know that you've reached that limit. That's how far far short you fall of true, complete inner happiness or inner flourishing. And so, what we're doing here, you can see, is we're testing our limits. We're putting ourselves to the test and saying, really, how grasping have you become in life? And of course, in our modern society, we are very used to this idea that we need these things to be happy, right? But but that is not the truth. And and, and so, you can be deceived, right? You can be deceived into thinking that that is ultimately important for you to have all of this stuff and to, to have these externals, right? But know that you're being deceived. And there's a great argument that Seneca makes in letter number 77. And he talks about how, you know, we are all slaves to something. You know, some are slaves to their business, some are slaves to uh, money, some are slaves to pleasure, right? We are all slaves to something. And, And you need to start by actually recognizing that, right? And so, the thing is, If you want to remain in ignorance and believe that, uh, you know, you do need these things to be truly happy, that's fine. But know that you're being deceived, right? And know that you are a slave to those things because there are many, many people throughout history who have been able to go with very, very little and still have internal flourishing. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why the Stoics looked up so much to the to cynic philosophers, because they were the ultimate proof that you could live a life that was so divorced from all of the niceties of culture, so divorced from anything that we would consider that we need, right? And they still appeared to be living, flourishing existences. And at this point, I'll remind you, uh, which I often do, uh, of a major difference between the Cynics and the Stoics, which is that the Stoics did not actually seek out uh, the removal of all of these things from, uh, from their lives, right? All of these externals, or you might think of them as anything external to your soul. So, they would not seek out that other than to practice it, right? Which is what Seneca is saying here. Practice this by going for short periods of time where you go without so that you know that you can. But other than that, you should not seek to remove all of this stuff from your life constantly. What you should seek to do is to unlearn the narratives that you have going through your mind which lead you to feeling attached to these things. When you can do that... Then you can see that when these things come into your life, like money or, uh, you know, a, a nice car or a nice home, or at the most extreme example, which the Stoics use, even your family, right? When these things come and go, they're not going to affect your ability ultimately to live a flourishing life. And this can only be the case when you have experienced uh, the wisdom of the Stoic idea of indifference, good, bad, and preferred indifference, right? So, what is good? Good is goods of the soul, as in virtue. What is bad or evil? You know, evil of the soul, or as in vice. Uh, What is indifferent? Well, that is everything outside of those two things, virtue and vice. Everything external to that is neither good nor bad, but it relies on the vessel that uses it, right? So, in the case of money, you know, money is neither good nor bad. It, re- it depends on how it is used by the person, the vessel. And then there are preferred indifference, which in each moment, you will decide whether something is preferred or not. And that might be money, right? So, let's say you're about to get a raise in your job. It's not necessarily good nor bad, but it might be a preferred indifferent, Something that it would be nice to have if it comes your way. Just in the same way that the, the Stoics talked about living life as if you're at a banquet. You know, things are passed around by fortune and fate. And, uh, and if you have the chance to take your portion, take it graciously and then pass it on. All right, so I've been rambling for a fair few minutes now and I'm biting off more than I can chew. So I'm going to dive back into the text and, uh, and, and we'll continue to pick this apart. There's another part that I love where uh, Seneca says... Do you think that there can be a fullness on such a affair? And he's referring to uh, Metrodorus and Epicurus having that kind of battle, who can live off less? So yeah, he says, uh, do you think that there can be a fullness on such a affair? Yes, and there is pleasure also. Not that shifty and fleeting pleasure, which needs a Philip now and then, but a pleasure that is steadfast and sure. For, though water, barley meal, and crusts of barley bread are not a cheerful diet, yet it is the highest kind of pleasure to be able to derive pleasure from this sort of food, and to have reduced one's needs to that modicum which no unfairness of fortune can snatch away. So I really love this point that Seneca makes because what he's showing us here is that you might be actually thinking about this in completely the wrong way, right? If you're still attached to all of these externals in your life and you think uh, that you're going to be losing some kind of pleasure uh, from removing them or at least from practicing going without them, he's actually showing us that there's a completely different kind of pleasure that you will experience if you know that you can go without them and still have a flourishing life and And it's kind of like confidence, you might say. It's confidence in your ability to withstand the inevitable trials of life and still have internal flourishing. And to further his point, I'll I'll give an analogy here. You know, there's that saying, uh, competence creates confidence, right? Now, let's say that you're going for a job interview. Uh, and you know that you have to present your skills. Now, let's say you are highly overqualified for that job. Let's say that, uh, you know, you've got all of the study down, you know exactly what you're doing, you've got all the qualifications, uh, and you know that no matter what they throw at you at this new job, you will have the skills, the ability to be able to deal with it. Now, what kind of confidence and internal flourishing do you think you're going to have going into that interview? What sort of confidence in yourself do you think you'll have? And won't that be a kind of pleasurable feeling that you'll have knowing that you have done everything that you could have done to be the absolute best for that job? You know, and then when you're in that job, you will have the confidence. You know, I I know this, you know, as a performer, for example, when I know that I am underprepared for a performance, it doesn't feel good. But when I know that I'm overprepared, when I'm ready and I'm, I'm so ready to get up there and do my very best and I, I'm prepared for it that is a certain type of pleasure that you feel that is 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 really meaningful right because you know that you've done the best job that you can do to prepare Now, Seneca here is telling us to prepare in that same way for the trials of life, to go with very little, to prove to yourself that you can do this, right? When you do that, you will have a certain confidence about life that no matter what happens to you, you still have what you need inside of you to be able to deal with that effectively and with a sense of internal flourishing. Which is why Seneca often gives us the most extreme examples of people who have actually done that, who have been so free and so internally uh, uh, grounded, you might say, uh, that no matter what happened to them, they got through it, uh, or at least they recognized that what they needed in life was just within them. You know, it was not these externals. And so what I take away from that little passage uh, from Seneca is to recognize that you might not actually be walking away from pleasure necessarily. You might actually be moving towards an even deeper, more meaningful joy in your life uh, when you remove certain things from your life and, uh, and, and practice going without them. You might be finding a certain pleasure that you would never have found elsewhere uh, by practicing this kind of discipline. All right, so finally, I want to I want to reread the, the last verse there, uh, where he says, For he alone is in kinship with God who has scorned wealth. Of course, I do not forbid you to possess it, but I would have you reach the point at which you possess it dauntlessly. This can be accomplished only by persuading yourself that you can live happily without it as well as with it, and by regarding riches always as likely to elude you. All right, so clearly uh, earlier on I jumped the gun a bit and brought in a lot of the ideas that Seneca gives us in this verse. But uh, firstly, this idea that we can enter a kinship with God when we scorn wealth, right? Uh, Very similar to that idea in the Bible, again, uh, that it is easier for a, a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, right because you know it's so hard for us to remove that uh, that that deep desire and attachment that we have to so many things in life but unless you can remove that attachment, you will not get to this certain kinship with God that Seneca talks about. You might call it eudaimonia. You might call it internal flourishing. You might call it nirvana or desirelessness. Whatever you call it, it's the place that you arrive at uh, when you no longer grasp at life and try to grab as much as your desires can hold, right? But rather you have returned back to that internal center that grounds you in who you truly are. And the, the possibilities of your own internal flourishing. And so Seneca brings in these ideas that I discussed earlier, of course, that he doesn't think that the reader should uh, not have money, you know, but just that if we do have it, it's not the thing that controls us. He says uh, that we should be able to have it dauntlessly. And he says that this is only accomplished by persuading ourselves uh, that we can live happily without it as well as with it, right? So, again, this idea that the Stoics say it's it's not about whether you have it or not. It's about who you are and how it changes you, right? And if it changes you when you do have it or don't have it. Think about it as if we are all living on this very wavy sea with big waves and then they go down and then they go up and then they go down. And, and these waves are like the things that come into our life and these circumstances that we find ourselves in. And what the Stoics would say is that you don't need to allow your emotions and your internal state to be guided by those waves. You don't need to go up when they go up. You don't need to go down when they go down. You can calm that ocean right? And you can float on top of these calm seas, right? Uh, By understanding the wisdom of what the Stoics are trying to say, uh, which is that everything you need for this internal flourishing is within you, right? You don't want to be always going up when the circumstances of your life seem good and always going down when the circumstances of your life seem to be going down. You want to recognize, and, and, and this is something that Epictetus said, you will not achieve eudaimonia. You will not achieve internal flourishing until you stop making these judgments about what is good and what is bad in your life. That's the narrative that you're believing that is making you be governed and a slave to all of these circumstances and these externals. But if you can remove those judgments, and if you can sit there in this place of desirelessness, then you can enjoy things when they come to you. And you will still be flourishing when they go. And so Seneca gives us this great tip at the end here that we can use to to, uh, really think about how we would fare if we went through hard circumstances in our life. And then to use that as a basis to train ourselves, right? And he says, uh, we can arrive at this place by regarding riches always as likely to elude us. Right. So so thinking about, you know, the chances of in your life, all of these things that you have being removed from you. Let's say that something terrible happens and all of a sudden you have nothing. Will you still be able to deal with that? Think of how you might fare. Think of how you might deal with that circumstance in your life and how it might affect you internally. And the Stoics were, you know, kind of extreme on this. They said, listen, if all of this is taken away from me, I've still got what I need inside of me. That's a really extreme view, but you have to really think for a long time and you have to practice to see whether that is true. It's not something that is necessarily just true or false when you're reading the philosophy or thinking about it from this episode. It's something that needs to be practiced and tested. And unless you do that, you won't truly know. So anyway, uh, I know I've rambled a lot in this episode. I'm going to finish it here. Uh, Hopefully there's some stuff that you can take away from this episode and, uh, you know, perhaps the ramblings will offer something of value. So I'll talk to you next time.